My mother was a woman of tremendous integrity. My mother was curious, protective, unflappable, loyal, complicated, powerful, honest, lyrical. She is devoted, resilient, dazzling, giving, extraordinary. She just jumped into this world of the air. My grandmother, when my mother told her that she was going to marry Charles Lindbergh, she sighed and she said, well, Anne, you'll have the sky. This is Our Mothers Ourselves, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. In 1929, Anne Spencer Morrow, a 23-year-old introverted intellectual, married arguably the most famous man in the world. He was Charles Lindbergh, and his solo flight over the Atlantic in 1927 had catapulted him to a wild level of fame. They were married for 55 years until his death in 1974. Anne became a writer, and her 1955 book, Gift from the Sea, sold 3 million copies. Her youngest child, Reeve Lindbergh, also a writer, joined me to talk about her extraordinary mother, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who died in 2001. Reeve Lindbergh, thank you so much for coming on to Our Mothers Ourselves to talk to me about about your mom. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Let's start. I'd like to ask you, if you had one word to describe your mother, what would that word be? She was extremely thoughtful in every sense of the word. Thoughtful. I like that. Thoughtful meaning in an intellectual sense, but also thoughtful toward others, just on every level. Thoughtful on every level. Let's keep that in mind as we go through the interview. And I'd like to start at the beginning of not just her life, but her parents' lives, her her own mother's life. And you know, as I as I do these interviews, I think about what the theme might be. And as I was preparing for this one with you, in your mom's case, it's sort of like completing circles. So you have Smith College all over your family, and her mother, Betty, went to Smith in the 1890s when I was reading that 2.8% of women even went to college in the 1890s. Yes, she was a real, um, very fierce advocate for women's education. And her husband, thank goodness, not only supported her, but he himself was very devoted to education in a number of ways. He went to Amherst. And it was so so prevalent throughout the family that uh, my mother quoted a, a friend of the family who said, they were a fine family, but nuts on education. So there's your grandfather, Dwight, your grandmother, Betty. They had three daughters, right? That's right. So, but there, here comes your mother. So she was the second daughter of the three daughters. Your mom, as I understand, I was reading a little bit in that biography by uh, Susan Hertog mm-hmm. um, about your mom being very shy, sort of the one who took a back seat to her older sister. Yes. And she, your mom, was a true mm-hmm. intellectual at Smith. And she was very studied. well educated, yes. And Smith was, was considered a blue stocking or a very intellectual place for women. And it sounds like she had a really rich inner life. She I mean, did. from early childhood. Yes. I love the story of, and here's where my whole little theory about completing the circle. So her mom, Betty, 
loved to write, ends up marrying your grandfather, and they start this whirlwind life together. And then he becomes a diplomat. He then goes to uh, become ambassador um, to Mexico. That's correct. Is that right? Yes, he was appointed and, by Calvin Coolidge. Mm-hmm. And this is where things get really fun, because then the story of your mom going to Mexico for Christmas and then meeting this tall, handsome guy. Will you tell that story? She met my father uh, in Christmas of 1927, which would be six months or so after his famous flight to Paris, which she knew very little about. She had been studying, she said, in the basement of the Smith College Library and writing a paper on Emerson. And she kind of came up into the light in in May and was hearing all about this aviator, this famous aviator, and didn't really connect with it at all. She she, uh, thought the nickname Lindy was silly. And she thought when she went to when she and her sisters and her brother went to Mexico for Christmas, she um, she thought, well, I'm not going to be interested in this Lindy, who arrived in Mexico City at the invitation of her father, Ambassador Morrow, and the president of Mexico. It was a kind of goodwill gesture from the United States to Mexico to help with relations between the two countries. And he came. And to to much fanfare, as I understand it, I mean, this was like the beginning of the whole phenomenon of paparazzi. That's what I think people really feel that the kind of the enormous attention that my father got once he landed in Paris was the beginning of that whole enormous paparazzi tradition of even what they called the yellow press to some extent, that celebrities were suddenly surrounded, attacked almost by the press. And I've had people who have apologized to me for what my father and my mother eventually went through as um, as a result of that attention. Yeah, I think it's easy for us to forget, first of all, that what it is that your parents went through. But we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But for now, let's let's um, let's stick with this fairy tale romantic meeting in Mexico when I guess Elizabeth was the one that your grandmother put forward to to Colonel Lindbergh? Okay, let's hear that story. I'm not sure. It may be true, but I think also um, that my mother felt that for sure this young man would fall for Elizabeth because everybody did. And and yet when he, when my father, uh, who was clearly interested in my mother all the time, when she eventually... um, let her parents know that she was thinking of, she had been proposed to by Charles Lindbergh. Her parents were quite taken aback. It wasn't enormous um, excitement and, and euphoria. Her father said, what do we know about this young man anyway? Yeah, because yeah, he was not, he was, I don't want to use the word hayseed, but he, I just did. Well, uh, you can, you go right ahead. I'm sure that's what they thought. <laughs> yeah, I, I get the feeling that that's what they thought, is what is this hayseed doing proposing to our daughter, even though he was world famous, right? I think they were, yeah, I thought, I would suspect that for one thing, my father was a terrible student. And then when he went to University of Madison, Wisconsin for engineering and a couple other things that he did quite well in, they had to 
expel him after two years because he basically, he was not an attentive student. And of course, after the flight, that same university gave him an honorary degree when he flew in after the flight. Let me interrupt you for a second to say uh, that not every, when you say the flight, there's, you know, a couple generations ago, everyone would have known what that was, but let's just do it like really okay, quick of recap of... The flight was, was uh, in 1927, my father made a nonstop solo flight from New York to Paris, and nobody had done exactly that before, and there was a prize uh, established for the first person who could do that. Many people tried and died. It was a very very tough thing to do at that time to fly over the North Atlantic because it took about 33, 34 hours and um, and it was very dangerous. He started in New York uh, in the rain and uh, and he kept flying over the North Atlantic, tried hard to stay awake. That was hard too. And he landed in Paris. He started 19th. I think he landed on the 21st of May in 1927. And there were thousands of people, probably the most famous person on the planet in that instant. Hard to get used to. (laughs) Yeah. And I have to tell you, my own father, he became a pilot, in fact, died in a crash in a Mm. plane he was flying. His birthday on the his seventh birthday, which was May 21st, 1927. Oh, for heaven's sake. Uh-huh. Yes. And the story he, tell, he told was that there was all this in, in New York City, there was all this uh, celebration and he heard fireworks and he said to his parents, oh, they all know it's my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> well, my father would love that story. That's just wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad it made and, him so happy. <clears throat> And that's what inspired him to become, I mean, he was a, he was a scientist, he was a physicist, but he had a passion for flying. And that's I think he got story. that passion. It is a lovely story. And he got that passion from your dad. Do oh, I believe that? it. <laughs> I love it. It's lovely. <laughs> so there we go. So now we've established for our listeners just how famous your father was. Your mother, you said, wasn't even really all that aware that this had happened, which is amazing. They get married. She became his co-pilot. She learned to fly. And did she, she did. did she have her very first flying experience with him? She did. She flew with him um, in Mexico. A whole family did. And did she just love it? She did. She did love it. So then she learned to fly herself. She did. And he, he taught her to fly. And then she she flew gliders. She was she was the first woman in this country to obtain a, a glider pilot's license, and she actually liked that better than motorized flying. She always loved that best and remembered it and wrote about it, which is something many people don't know about her. Yeah, when I saw that about her being the first woman to get a glider pilot's license, I guess in nineteen thirty. Mm-hmm. I think it was 30, like 31. So, yeah. I, of course, she would like that more than motorized flying. My guess is because of the silence. That you are so right. <laughs> she loved the silence because you could not only see what was below you, but you could hear. You could hear birds. You could hear the wind in the trees. 
And it, it was a completely silent and absolutely beautiful experience. Oh, so now we have, uh, we have your mom, this woman with a rich inner life. She's married this huge celebrity, but she was private. How did she handle all that attention? Was it hard for her? I think it was hard for her. But in a way, she had the training for some of this as, as a diplomat's daughter. I don't think she had anything like the training for the paparazzi aspect of it. She's all of five feet tall. Yeah. Size five shoe. That's and correct. Size five. Mm-hmm. I mean, do not well, confuse it. stature, it. physical stature with, with strength, right? She had such strength and stamina and a kind of um, character that was just solid to the core. She thought of herself as a shy, timid, ineffective even um, young woman. And she wasn't. She was a remarkably uh, competent and tough individual. She just jumped into this world of the air. My grandmother, when my mother told her that she was going to marry Charles Lindbergh, she sighed and she said, well, Anne, you'll have the sky, which was a great thing for her to say, because that's, I'm sure, what my mother felt, that he had given her the sky. Well, he gave her a whole different world, a huge, and the openness of sky and the adventure of sky, just some kind of wonderfully liberating element that she had stepped into with my father. So they got married in 1929, mm-hmm. and they had their first child, Charles Jr. Yes, yeah, and that's right. Walk us, walk us through that story. Well, they had, I think, um, I think there was a lovely period of his first year or so. He was a, a, a you know blonde, blue-eyed, very um, smiley and affectionate child. And they were terribly happy. My mother, she wrote a book called Hour of Gold, Hour of Lead. And the Hour of Gold was that happy trio, her, she and her husband and this little boy. And the Hour of Lead began when her baby, their baby was taken from his room um, at their home in Hopewell, New Jersey. And he was kidnapped for money. There was a ra- ransom note. But in fact, from what my mother understood over the years, he had died immediately. He had fallen from the, from the ladder they used. And he was dead from within, within minutes of his being taken. They didn't know that. They went through a long period of trying to get somebody to negotiate with the kidnappers. And um, and the somebody involved was arrested, Bruno Hauptmann. And I don't think people are sure that he was the only person involved, but he was arrested, and he was ultimately executed for the crime. There was a kidnapping law passed uh, in reference to that crime. It was absolutely devastating. As I've been thinking about it, of course, I like many have heard about it through the years. And it was this, again, this huge public frenzy around the kidnapping at the time. And it's been likened to the O.J. Simpson, yes. to the uh, to that mm-hmm. case in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so there, what happens when something 
becomes so public is that we tend to forget the private devastation. Indeed, we do. I do. I noticed and was told about people who deeply identified with this. And men of, of the era have year, years ago now have come to me and said, well, I was um, I was taken for the Lindbergh baby. The police stopped my parents' car and they thought I was the Lindbergh baby because I was the right age. And this happened to men all over the country. <laughs> this happened to people or they had terrible nightmares about being taken from their family and um, spirited away. Yeah, it, in its time, it was one of the most horrific things. Yes, I never met my brother. I'm very sad about that. But uh, then they went on to have um, to have my older brother John and my brothers Land and Scott and my sister Anne and me. They had a big family after the death of that child. Mm-hmm. But I don't. And I know, in fact, that my mother never forgot. And I lost a child that same age, uh, just through, through illness, a, a little boy. And she was of the greatest help to me because she had gone through that. We shared something that was very helpful to me and perhaps helpful to her. I don't know. Oh, what an eerie coincidence, though. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm so sorry that happened. No. You don't forget, but you do grow around it, which is something she said to me. She said that on that day, she said, the horrors, the horror subsides, uh, the memory remains, the love remains. Mm-hmm. I never forgot. I was, she was, as I said, tremendously helpful mm-hmm. because of what she had been through and the way she had endured it, her very thoughtful and precise gift to me of how she had survived it. So she had a lot of wisdom to give you during that time and probably throughout your life. She was the mother of five children after her first child died. What kind of mother was she? Oh, she was a lovely, adorable mother. <laughs> she was adorable. She, I, she was an adorable mother. And um, I compared notes with my brother, and we realized that each one of us thought we were her favorite child. <laughs> oh, that okay. Now that's a good, that's a good mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did she pull that off? I don't. Well, she was a one a wonderful listener, and she never ever gave you uh, a sense that um, that there was anything wrong with you. You could not, um, you couldn't sustain an idea that there was anything wrong with you ever in the presence of my mother, who, who loved her children, I think probably equally. <laughs> but but she, she was asked once, well, and I can't remember who asked her, not me, who was your favorite child? And she would think and she'd say, um, the one who needs me most at the time. Mm, <laughs> um, good answer. She, yeah, it was a great answer. What year were you born? I was born in 1945 at mm-hmm. the very end of, of the war, the Second World War, and grew up in the 40s and 50s. I'd like to talk about this kind of touchy subject of your father's uh, reputation during the rise of the Nazi era. Um he made speeches with the America's First Committee, and that an isolationist group, right? That was an isolationist movement um, 
of people who did not want the U.S. to enter the Second World War. And, of course, this was before Pearl Harbor and before the inevitability of war was quite so obvious. And he he said in, in the speech that was the most reviled, he said there are three groups pushing for war, the British, the Roosevelt administration, and the Jews. And then he went on to say why each group wanted believe we should enter the war. My mother told him, if you give that speech, you will be labeled anti-Semitic. And he said, but I'm not anti-Semitic. And he went on and made the speech. And she was right. I don't think he ever understood the way many people don't understand racism today. I mean, many people will say, well, I'm not racist. And we didn't, our family wasn't involved in slavery and this, that, and the other. But there is an atmosphere of racism or anti-Semitism and a structure that is is evident and kind of reflected by certain ways of speech he didn't understand. And how do you think your mother, um, she must have been frustrated that he didn't listen to her. For her, the hardest part was that she felt there are people who will never see who he really is. Uh, above all, her sense, no, no, that's not who he really is. No matter what he said, that's not who he really is. And I think that hurt the most. Let's go back to your to your mother's internal life. And uh, you were, let's see, so she then was this wonderfully present mother for all of you. And then if you were born in 1945, so you were 10 years old, around 10, I guess, when she... Yep went off to write Gift from the Sea. Yes, do you remember was. Do, you, do you remember all of that vividly? I don't remember it too vividly. And it was she actually wrote the book over several years, but there was probably a there would have been a period of weeks when she was away. And I'm sure I didn't like it one bit, but I don't remember that. I do remember the excitement of the publication and how we used to watch the the New York Times bestseller list to see whether Gift from the Sea, which was on it, to see how it um, how it had either climbed or fallen in that list. And something like five, it sold five million copies over the years, right? Uh, like yeah, that. I'm thinking three million, but yeah. five million could yeah. be. What's a few million? What's a few million, yeah. <laughs> so uh, rather than talk about the book, let's actually hear the book, and I'd love to have you read a little, a little excerpt. Well, I would love to do it, and thank you for suggesting this. See, I'm reading from the chapter that's called Channeled Whelk, which is the name of a shell. Each chapter is called after one of the shells on the beach where she stayed. This excerpt starts, To be a woman is to have interests and duties raying out in all directions from the central mother core like spokes from the hub of a wheel. The pattern of our lives is essentially circular. We must be open to all points of the compass. Husband, children, friends, home, community. Stretched out, exposed, sensitive like a spider's web to each breeze that blows, to each call that comes. With a new awareness, both painful and humorous, I begin to understand why the saints were rarely married women. I am convinced it has nothing inherently to do, as I once supposed, with chastity or children. It has to do primarily with distractions, 
the bearing, rearing, feeding, and educating of children, the running of a house with its thousand details. The problem is not merely one of woman and I'm going to rudely talk over Reeve for a minute here just to say that it didn't occur to me until I was editing the interview and came to this part that this was written in 1955, and Anne Lindbergh was saying something pretty profound about a mother seeking balance in her life. I mean, this was way ahead of its time. There is no easy answer. I must find a balance somewhere, or an alternating rhythm between these two extremes, a swing of the pendulum between solitude and communion, between retreat and return. In my periods of retreat, perhaps I can learn something to carry back into my worldly life. I can at least practice for these two weeks the simplification of outward life as a beginning. When do you remember reading the book for the first time? I read the book when I was... I think I didn't read the book from beginning to end until I was in college. I knew it was there. And I knew what it meant to my mother. And it was separate from my life with her. I probably was jealous of the book. <laughs> I just, I think, I, and then when I went to, went to school myself, when I went into college life, I was much more interested. And I began mm-hmm. to read. I read from cover to cover. And then I read it again. And I still read that book once a year. And I'm 75 years old. <laughs> so, so for 50 some odd years, I have been reading Gift from the Sea at least once a year. And it always brings me, it brings me back my mother, yes, but it brings back the wisdom that she poured into that book, which means so much to so many women, even now. So much. And, you know, his books, I found when my father was dying and, um, I read my father's Spirit of St. Louis from cover to cover. And I read it again. I think it was very, and I found that a couple of my brothers were doing the same thing. (laughs) Do you think Um, we do that? Do you think mm -hmm. we go through our parents' journals and papers and books to get to know them better or in a different way or from a different place? I absolutely think we do. And thank you for saying that. And I have this connection to my parents. Mm-hmm. And it gets back to my theory, my possibly crackpot theory of of completing the circle uh, intergenerationally where your mother's mother had, it sounds like she had a rich inner life, as did your mother, as do you, and it manifested in writing and well, I like progressive... your crackpot theory. <laughs> I don't, I don't oh, think it's a you. crackpot theory. <laughs> It's definitely growing on me. And uh, so they, so now it has managed to, there's a continuum through the generations of the writing and expression through writing, which uh, is really rich that all of you women, I know the men have been writers too, but let's stick with the women, have been able to achieve in in the richest way. And the book of yours that really strikes a chord with me is the one at the very end of your mother's life, No More Words. Oh, boy. Uh, yes. yes, thank you. That is so powerful. It's almost hard to read. 
it's it's both heartbreaking and it's uplifting. And uh, why don't you describe your mother's very late years? The book that you mentioned, uh, No More Words, was not written as a book. That book came from my journals as I was here on the farm in Vermont when my mother came to live with us the last two years of her life. She had had a series of strokes. It wasn't Alzheimer's, but it presented a bit like Alzheimer's. She would, she seemed to be um, not, not connecting with the world, and she was very, very quiet. She didn't talk much, but she was a woman of words. And um, I think that was the hardest thing for me, was not to have her voice in my life. And she had caregivers who were there all the time. They were Buddhists. They would um, they would take her driving a lot because she often said that, which I know is very common, she would say, I want to go home. And she wouldn't tell you where home was. I took her driving once and she suddenly said to me, I'm afraid. And I got very concerned. And I said, what is it? you're afraid of mother is it your you know is it is it feeling weaker or losing friends or what is it and she looked at me right in the middle of was it highway i93 i think and she said it's your driving <laughs> <laughs> so she could talk and she could she could make her feelings known sounds like she had a good sense of humor <laughs> I think she did. She'd come out of that little quiet, slightly drifty person that she seemed to be the last few years of her life, and she could just kind of nail you with with a statement. Were you with her when she died? I was. Yeah, I was. Um, I was right there with with her. My brothers were there. Two two of them were there at mm-hmm. when she died, and it was very peaceful. It was very um, very quiet, and, um, and there was a beautiful snowstorm happening the day she died. Just absolutely beautiful and very quiet. Mm. What would you say her legacy is to the world and to you? I think her legacy is to stay open. That's what I would say. It was to stay open to life as much as you can. And it was certainly what she did. So many things happened to her in her life. And she was able to, she didn't uh, close up. I don't know how, how else to, to talk about it. She always was able to sit quietly, to be thoughtful, to listen, to absorb whatever had happened or whatever a person was telling her. And she was probably the most open person I've ever known. And that in itself is a very rare gift Well, this has been so interesting, and thank you so much. I mean, you you use the word thoughtful. I would, I guess, I can think of at least, as you said, another dozen words to describe. That's it. That's it. There are at least another dozen. That's the one I I I hold on to. I think, oh, such Uh openness to life, and that, Mm -hmm. in a sense, means she was. I can't say unafraid. I'm sure she would disagree with me. But that was a, a gift to all of us, her openness, her thoughtfulness, her listening, and her reaching out through her words to all the rest of us. Well, Reeve, thank you so much. Thank you, Katie. This has been a real kind of a nourishment for me to be able to talk about her with you this way. Thank you. Ask Mama.
And that's it this week for Our Mothers Ourselves. Our theme music was composed and performed by Andrea Perry. Paula Manchin is our artist-in-residence, and Alice Hudson is the show's producer. Please visit us at OurMothersOurselves.com and contribute the one word that best describes your mother to the site's mother word cloud. That's OurMothersOurselves.com. Our Mothers Ourselves is a production of Odredex Studios in San Francisco, and I'm your host, Katie Hafner. Here's to a great 2021.